Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Right. I gave a long lecture on the Profumo affair to the Harpenden Art Society yesterday. Wow. It was Philip Larkin, wasn't it? Don't start because I've got it into the intro. Hello, everyone. This is Colin Schindler welcoming you back to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. For a change, Paddy Barkley, John Holmes and I will be looking not at a club or a personality or a particular facet of the game, but at one particular calendar year, which has been receding in the rearview mirror now for a scarcely believable 60 years. Philip Larkin celebrated it memorably in his poem Annus Mirabilis. Sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was rather late for me, between the end of the Chatterley Ban and the Beatles' first LP. Hmm. Of course, what Larkin really meant to say was that Everton won the league, Manchester United won the cup, and Manchester City were relegated to Division 2 along with Leighton Orient. Yes, it was that long ago. But it was quite a year, 1963. It began with the big freeze, but it is now mostly remembered as being the year of the notorious and socially significant Profumo affair, the great train robbery, which helpfully provided the raw material for the first feature film I wrote called Buster, and, of course, the assassination of President Kennedy. And because we're focusing on the year 1963, we can shift backwards and forwards between the 62-63 season and the 63-64 season in an inevitable comparison with the 2023-24 season. For me, the 62-63 season was particularly significant, which I'll explain later. And for John, it meant yet another trip to Wembley. And for Paddy, well, it was cold enough in the frozen north. What on earth was happening in the wastelands of Dundee in 1963? Well, we were narrowly failing. Well, we were failing, just failing, to get to the European Cup final. I mean, you talked, or sorry, Philip Larkin talked earlier <laughs> about sex beginning in 1963. Well, I, I had already been initiated into the joys of same 
Paddy bragging again. I mean, I cannot believe this. I don't think my girlfriend, if she's listening, because we were the same age, I don't think she'd think I had much to brag about. But something even better than sex was happening on the field because Dundee had begun their campaign. And I'm cheating a little by going back into the autumn of 1962. Our first match was against Cologne, who I think were the third favourites to lift the title the European title that year. And the first leg was at Dens Park. And I can remember 24 and a half, 25,000 of us went, hoping for a, a draw, you know, and then maybe lose over in the Mungersdorfer Stadium in Cologne and have a respectable exit. After 20 minutes, the score was Dundee 4, Cologne nil. We went on to win 8-1 in our first European Cup tie. And I doubt if, apart from perhaps Manchester United, Anderlecht, there's ever been a more dramatic introduction to a European campaign by a British club. We lost the second leg 4-0, but we then went on to beat Sporting of Portugal, Sporting Lisbon, as they're usually called. We then went on to play Anderlecht. The first leg was in Brussels, and we won 4-1. Uh, I listened to it on Flemish radio, and although I didn't understand a word of Flemish, the commentator kept saying words like Gilzine in a very glum voice, so I knew we were winning. And then we also won the second leg 2-1. By now the crowd had swollen to a near capacity 40,000, and the same number were there to see our semi-final, which was against Milan. Unfortunately, our captain and defensive organiser Bobby Cox was out injured, Craig Brown, his deputy, the late great Craig Brown, took responsibility saying, I was not in the same class as Bobby Cox. However, Craig was a good player, despite his protestations. So we'd no excuse, we lost fair and square 5-1. We did win the second leg, but Alan Gilzine, who I think had scored the goal, he got sick of being booted all over the place and whacked his tormentor, was sent off, and that was the end of it. So we went out, but if we'd gone through... The final was at Wembley. But just think if little Dundee had become the first British team to play in a European Cup final and had moreover played it at Wembley, we would be a pan-British institution. Who knows how big we could have been. But anyway, it wasn't to be. But it was still a wonderful, wonderful campaign. So to quote an adaptation of the road and and the miles to Dundee, the year 63 has been happy for me. And John, it was a really great year for you because you no, should have won the double. Disaster. But before we do that, could I say that was Paddy Barclay's impression of Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger in the back of the car. <laughs> we could have been really big, Charlie. Instead of a bomb, which I am. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a disaster, 1963, because uh, it got cold in the, on Boxing Day yes. in 1962. We played the last game that day for a few weeks because we beat Lake Norian 5-1. And then, for whatever reason, Leicester were pretty innovative. They were the only side that managed to get a pitch going, although the temperatures never rose above freezing for three or four months, wasn't it? It was way into Mm -hmm. March or April. And during that period, we had our sort of record run, later surpassed, 
under Brendan Rodgers, but the record run of about eight or nine games, which we won. Those included cup wins against people like Oxford and Bristol City and the Orient again, actually. And yes, it looked at one point as though Leicester would do the double. Dave Gibson was in his bump. Mike Stringfellow's playing out of this world. Ken Keyworth was scoring goals. He was a converted wing half playing at centre forward. Seemed to have found the Midas touch. Matt Gillis and Bert Johnson, whichever it was of them, came up with this system whereby Appleton, McClintock and Graham Cross shuttled position. Banks was in outstanding form, especially in a semi-final that we played against Liverpool. Liverpool attacked us for about 80-90% of the game, but Banks, Cross, King, Appleton, Richie Norman, John Schoberg kept them out. We got to the final. I think a week or so later, we went top of the first division, beat Manchester United 4-3 at home. Ken Keywood scored a hat-trick in six minutes. Incidentally, Dennis Law also scored a hat-trick in that game. And then it all fell apart. Why? We got injuries. I think Gibson was injured. I think McClintock was injured. We played the last few games all in a rush. We thought it would be all right because in those days, I was actually more interested in winning the Cup. The Cup was the big competition. Of course. And for me, as a you know 12-year-old going there, I was convinced we'd win. There was no way we wouldn't. Manchester United were rubbish. They nearly got relegated, along with Manchester City. What a thing that would have been. Of course, we didn't perform on the day. Dave Gibson admits one of his worst games. Banks had a shocker, dropped two, gave them the game. On the other hand, Law, Creran, Charlton came alive a bit, and we lost that. And I was completely devastated. As far as I was concerned, that was really a total disaster in my world at that point. So I can't look back on 1963 with any great affection. The only good thing was I can remember going to Cowling's record store in Leicester where you had booths and you could hear the records played and you could make a choice. And I decided that I'd only got whatever it was, six bob. Six and eightpence. It was a third of a pound for a single. <laughs> it was six bob in Leicester. We weren't oh, well, uh, Callum's good value. <laughs> anyway, I took two into the booth. So I listened to a single by a new group called The Beatles. Mm-hmm. And the single was Please Please Me. Mm-hmm. And I listened to Bobby V singing The Night Has a Thousand Eyes. Oh. After much consideration, I went for The Beatles. Mm. Well, who can beat that? My personal story of 63s is very different to both of you, but it's relevant in the sense that it absolutely indicates it was the beginning of the passionate involvement, not with the girlfriend, but with Manchester City. I turned 13 at the end of June, and in early July, I was by mitzvah being 13 years old. Within six weeks or so, at the end of September 1962, my mother died of an aneurysm in the most extraordinary manner without any warning. She kissed me goodnight, tucked me up in bed. When I went off to school, she hadn't got up. On the Tuesday, my brother came to school, who had just left, was on his way to university. Sometimes, well, frequently, people used to come back to school, even though they'd left, to say hello to everybody. And and I just thought that was it. And he just said, Mum's in hospital, and you've got to go and stay with your auntie tonight. And I never saw her again. She died a week later. I mean, I'm not doing this for sympathy. It's over 60 years ago, for heaven's sake. 
But it was the single most devastating and influential, I suppose, moment in my life. And I'm making cause and effect very close together. But I would always been a city supporter. I'd always been a lover of football. But in that 62-63 season, Manchester City replaced my mother because the family disintegrated. We were an ordinary nuclear family. My father was a commercial traveller who couldn't stop, even though his wife had died. My brother went off to university. And I, who was the youngest member of a perfectly ordinary nuclear family a few weeks ago, was suddenly completely on my own in Manchester. And what I found to keep me going on a Saturday was Manchester City's home matches. And I went to every single one of them. And that sort of became the modus operandi for the next few years. And it was that season, 62-63, because they wouldn't leave me. You know, I have, I'm happy to admit, abandonment issues which have dogged me for the rest of my life. Did your father take you to matches? No, no, father had no interest in football whatsoever. No, I started really with those three other friends who I wrote about in the Manchester United Room yeah, and Life yeah. book. And it was those three friends who we all went to school together and we all got on the bus at Grand Lodge and we went on the one bus the number 75, and it dropped us off on Lloyd Street North, right outside Main Road. Because City were not going to go anywhere, well, except in the second division, as it transpired, they were not going to leave me. They were always going to be there. I became obsessed with them. They were the one fixed element of my life that would love me back, if you see what I mean, Mm -hmm. without fear that they would bugger off somewhere else and and love somebody else instead. Mm -hmm. So I was devoted to them. And now we'll go off to things that we both share. They played one match between the 15th of December and the 7th of March. One match. That was only three months when not a game was played. And what we got, and what I want from the two of you, is your memories of this extraordinary invention called the Football Pools Panel, which became an absolute obsession. How could they say we lost at home to Preston North? That's a ridiculous thing. What do you remember of the Pools Panel, Paddy? Ah, the Pools Panel. Yes, well, the Pools Panel predicted the results of matches purely for the football pools. The matches, of course, had to be played properly later, and those were the results that counted, obviously. But we still took an interest in whether our teams were supposed to have won on the Saturday or not. It was, of course, in those days, for young people who might be listening, I suppose it was the equivalent of the National Lottery today, you know, harmless gambling tended to be the pools, and you'd forecast the football results, in particular the eight matches that would end in draws. Now, the pools panel was chosen for days of mass postponement, which were far from rare in days when undersoil heating was just a sort of futuristic concept. Yes, it was a particularly severe winter. And yeah, the pools panel were just part of life. They were sitting and pronouncing on matches. They were quite scientifically chosen in that you got, I remember, Ronnie Simpson. I think Tom Finney was on them. Tom Finney. So these were not mugs, you know. These were people who knew the football. It had credibility and it was geographically diverse, so Mm. they wouldn't be accused like a referee of favouring teams from their own neck of the woods and so on. I mean, they were pretty straightforward, you know, the equivalent of Manchester City today would be expected to beat the equivalent of Burnley at home, you know, so it it wasn't rocket science. But the only time they got it wrong was when they predicted that your own team had lost. And you say, (laughs) there's no way we'd have lost a party, bloody thistle. But obviously they had to predict a reasonable number of draws. The most lucrative way of winning money was the eight draws. Eight draws out of, what, 50 matches or whatever it is. 
played north and south of the border. So they must have been told, listen, boys, because they were all boys, put 12, 15 draws or something like that. John, do you remember a sketch? It wasn't Tony Hancock, but it was of this time, and there was a newsreader, Peter Sellers or was, something. That was the week that was. It was around the era of Beyond the Fringe and the emergence, of course, of David Frost. Hello, good evening and welcome. And he said, here is the football result. <laughs> Chelsea 2. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I was thinking of a terrific sketch that a John Webster-like figure was reading out the League Division 1 results. As he's reading them out, there are a lot of draws. You can hear in his voice getting more and more excited. (laughs) Chelsea 3, Sheffield Wednesday 3. And so on. He goes on and on and on until he gets to 7. And then he goes, Albro 4, East 5, (laughs) 2. The whole thing disintegrates (laughs) at that point. But nothing is ever said. And and it's so well done that you just know what's going on in his head. Anyway, that was the first part. Dundee United made local history that year because... They had a manager at the time called Jerry Kerr, pipe-smoking manager, very good, actually. And he was clever because at the time, three months, hardly any games were played. So he thought, if Dundee United could play a couple of games in this midwinter, we can get ourselves up the table and the other teams will be playing catch-up. And he knew what he was going to do. He sent a couple of lorries down to Broughty Ferry Beach, which is on the outskirts of Dundee. They came back with sand. And the local referee had said, look, you can't play the matches if you can't take a stud. And obviously the packed ice wouldn't take a stud. So he, Jerry Kerr, got the pitch completely covered with sand, a layer of about a stud length. They had the groundsman mark it out, you know, with the penalty areas and all that kind of stuff, called in the referee and said, is that playable? The referee stuck his studs in. He said, well, yeah. So Dundee United were able to play, I don't know, two, three matches And that gave them a little bit of a psychological advantage on the others whose fixture congestion was more acute. And in those days, stereotyping was perfectly okay. They were known and have henceforth always been known as the Arabs because they played on sand. But John, the season was extended because of the big freeze. It was, The cup final took place on the last Saturday in May. I've still got the ticket somewhere, I think. It was very late, and the ticket was were printed out well in advance, and it was overprinted with the new date. The season almost, well, it restarted at the end of March, but it, it came to a head throughout the whole of May. The first weekend in May, Leighton Orient effectively were doomed to relegation at that time, though it was not clear who would go down with them. It looked like Manchester City or Manchester United. In the second division, Stoke City were on the way up. If you remember, they had the recently rejuvenated Stanley Matthews. And on the 11th of May, Everton won the First Division title. And on the 15th of May, the next Wednesday, there was a derby match at Main Road, which, boy, do I remember to this day, where Manchester City had to beat United at home. And if they did, almost certainly United would go down and City would stay up. And as it transpired, we went ahead with a goal by Alex Harley, who scored again in the 20th minute. And it was disallowed for reasons that completely, without VAR, and without any explanation, nobody had the faintest idea why it was disallowed. Absolutely none. Because I don't think the Alliance had his flag up. The referee disallowed it. And in the second half, about 10 minutes from the end, United got a penalty, which, you know, I, I have complained to Dennis Law about ever since. And Dennis Law says, I can feel Harry Dowd's grabbing my ankle. And he went down in the area. United got a penalty. Quicksall scored and ended in a one-all draw. And City were doomed. They have one match to play. They went to West Ham. 
and they lost 6-1 just to make it you know, completely clear they were going down. So that was my first season where I watched almost every single match and it ended in complete and utter humiliation and disaster, which was a, a fundamental part of my life for the next few years. John, do you remember the other things that went on in that year? We'd mentioned the big freeze, we mentioned Beatlemania, but there was also a rather extraordinary sex scandal going on. You mean other than the one in Dundee? Well, that was apparently consensual, apparently. It was a bit more than consensual on my <laughs> side, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, of course, there was the Profumo affair. If you remember, it was the year that Alec Douglas Hume took over from Harold Macmillan. Harold Macmillan, who couldn't actually believe that Profumo had lied in Parliament to him. Harold Macmillan, who was a sort of Edwardian gentleman figure, who had his own problems with his wife, of course, because his wife was having an affair with Bob Boothby, who was simultaneously having an affair with the craze. Mm. I mean, you call him Bob Boothby, John. To me, he was Lord Boothby. But by God, he could swing both ways. I knew him because he was on Any Questions all the time. He was, he was and he was, very, he was very good, actually, on Any Questions. And what I was saying about Profumo was it was a major, major, not just the schoolboy thing that we had, where, ooh, look what's going on here. I mean, our parents' generation were horrified. It changed the social deference of a nation, not just by itself. It was the symbol of the change between one England and another England, the deferential 50s yeah. into the scandalous 60s. You know, I think yeah. that it's fair to say that. Wouldn't you agree? Certainly. I think it was a sort of overall awakening and the Beatles came along, the Mersey Sound came along, Brian Epstein actually controlled the charts at that point. Well, Silla Black and Jerry... Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Mersey Beats. It was a completely... New era. Larry Parnes had controlled pop music prior to that with all these names that he made up, Billy Fury, Tommy yeah. Steele, Vince Eager, and then came the Liverpool sound. Jimmy Tarbuck willingly admits that one week he was playing in working men's clubs in the Liverpool area. The next, he was on Sunday night at the Liverpool Palladium with a Beatles haircut, and he was then a star. So everything really changed at that point. Regional accents prior to that had not been heard on television. I was 12 years old. These are formative years anyway. And they stick with you those years, don't they? At my school, we couldn't play football yeah. for about three months. I kept lying to the headmaster saying, I've had a look at the playing field and it looks all right to me. <laughs> That's your inspection, yes. Yeah, correct. But for some reason, he didn't believe me. <laughs> so it was a completely awful period. The only thing that lit it up at that point was, first of all, Leicester's run, this incredible run. You know, we were winning all the games. I can remember a row between my parents as to whether I should be allowed to go and watch the six-round match at Norwich. Norwich is a hell of a journey from Leicester. It took, we had to set off God knows what time in, in the morning in the car. Anyway, we beat them 2-0. They missed a penalty. Ha -ha. At our end, we got into the semi-final. We then beat Liverpool. What an achievement to beat Liverpool in the year of Liverpool in the semi-final. And then disaster. So I'm with you. Manchester United, they may have ruined your life. They played their part in ruining that year, for me anyway. 
Mm. Glad to know that the Charity Shield in August 63, before the season started, Everton beat United 4-0, which gives you an idea of the real difference in class between United then. But however, a month later, there was a vacancy on the right wing and they brought in this little Irish lad, 17-year-old kid from Northern Ireland called something like George Best. And I was there that day and I was on the terraces right at the front of the main stand and I was watching this this kid make mincemeat of this left back called Graham Williams. Graham Williams, yeah. And was then dropped very soon, after looking terrific, was then dropped and brought back at Christmas. Paddy, what was your first memories of George? Oh, well, I remember the two of them because it was Willie Anderson, uh, a sky yes. slide with a uh, similar haircut yes. to George. Obviously, he didn't turn out to be as good, but the two of them made an impact. I remember George a bit later. I don't remember actually being as impressed early on by him. But of course, he was... Ah, we could talk about George Best for 12 episodes, as far as I'm concerned. But you mentioned the Everton team there. Are we able to dwell slightly on that? Yes, because they were a fine side. Need talking about, yeah. Gordon West in goal, you know... That uh, right back, Alex Parker, do you remember him? Yes. Scottish. Yes. Was that before Tommy Wright played? Uh, yes, before, yeah. This is the era of Alex Young and the Golden Arrow. And yes. The Golden Vision. Golden Vision. The sexiest player in the team was Alex Young. I didn't see as much of him as you did. I think he was a, a centre forward who dropped deep and play. Maybe not as deep as Don Reavy, but he could drop deep and play. He wasn't particularly big. Then there was the little tough winger, Johnny Morrissey, one of these, maybe not as bad as Summerby, but one of those who would do the fullback <laughs> first, you know. Mm. Billy Bingham on the right wing later became... Was Bobby Collins in that side? No, he wasn't, no, funnily he'd enough. He'd gone to Leeds by then. Certainly Derek Temple probably played during that era as well. Not in that title season. Brian Labone? Brian Labone definitely at centre-back. Jimmy Gabriel probably at left-back looking at the team. Roy Vernon, the Welshman, was a classy inside midfield player. Dennis Stevens, you know, played for Bolton mm. in the cup final. 58, yeah. Yeah, the 58 cup final yeah, after yeah. Munich. He was a very good player as well. Catterick was a very good manager. I mean, he's got he's not really... Well, he, he made his he name, name with Sheffield Wednesday, hadn't he? And yes. He was the most coveted manager in the game. He won the league championship twice. He won it again with Everton in 1970. But, yes. And they won the cup, obviously, with Mike Trebilcoke's goals in, in 66. And Derek but, Temple, yeah. And Derek Temple, of course, scoring the winner. But he wasn't a starry manager, was he? No. He was rather a cold, remote figure, yes. yeah. as it's always told to me. And a complete contrast to Bill Shankly, yes. of whom we have spoken. Yes, oh, we may, but, but it was probably him who brought in the Bull Kendall Harvey trio that ran the midfield in the late 60s. I mean, but they had the disaster, yes. of course, at that point, that one of the key players they signed was Tony Kay. And we move yeah. on to another great event from yeah. that year, which was, in fact, the breaking of the uh, connected with the pools as well. Of the bribery scandal. Yes. The three that are, of course, famous were all at Sheffield Wednesday. They're related to matches of an earlier era. There was Bronco Lane, as he was called, after the TV star. There was Tony Kay and the England centre-half, who would arguably have kept Jack Charlton out of the 66 World Cup side, Peter Swan. Do you know how much they made out of the scandal? Only a few hundred quid, wasn't 200 it? Two hundred quid. Was... Yeah. They lost their careers and their lives over 200 quid. It started all in Mansfield. The man behind it was a Scotsman, of course, Jimmy Gold. Mm -hmm. And there was also a fellow called Sammy Chapman was involved, who later went on to become a manager 
There were various games involving Sheffield Wednesday. There was even rumoured to be one game which Manchester United lost at Leicester 6-0, where Manchester United could have been implicated. Correct. The extent, I think, of the corruption involving the football pools and football at that point, there was a suspicion over several games that people were corruptible because of the low wages that were being paid. One example of it, that was in late April 1963, the day that Dundee won the league. They played at St Johnston away. Alex Ferguson was in the St Johnston team. Got relegated that day, by the way, because we beat them 3-0. That was good. I didn't know how good it would feel to relegate Ferguson. But Did you manage to talk to him about that particular relegation? I decided to talk about the weather instead <laughs> for some reason. But yes, before the kickoff, a player connected with St Johnston came into the Dundee dressing room and it wasn't considered, you know, a gasp-worthy event when he offered them money. I think we only needed to draw or win narrowly to clinch the title, whatever Rangers did the same day. St Johnston, with a draw or a narrow defeat, would in all probability stay up. So there was a clear market there in the mood of the time. And this St Johnston reserve came in, offered our players, I don't know what it was, 30 quid, 50 quid, to draw or or whatever the desired result was. And one or two of ours were sort of thinking of biting before Ian Ewer, our captain, said, I'm warning you, if you so much as even think about this, I'm going straight to Shankly. Now, Shankly was Bob Shankly, brother Mm -hmm. of Bill, our manager. And they all went, okay, 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 okay. And that that was, no more was heard of it. The St. Johnston guy was sent out of the dressing room. But it wasn't something that was considered unusual in the spirit of the time. So it was still going on a year before 1963, in the spring of 62, in Scotland anyway, it was still going on. John, do you think that these three players, and there were others, as, as you say, but they took minimal amounts of money, 200 quid we're talking about, in order to fix the panel result or whatever. But it's a team game. And what I want to know is, if these three players took the money and the other eight players didn't know about it, how could they really, apart from smashing the ball past their own goalkeeper from three yards, you know, how could they affect the result? Yes, I would have thought the goalkeeper was most obvious, was probably yeah. the best one to bribe, or the referee. But who knows? You know, it's a bit like, did we catch all the train robbers? Oh, don't start with me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it was the tip of the iceberg, John? That's what I'm asking. Do you think there was a lot more My feeling is a bit like the Bungs scandal, that actually it probably wasn't the real criminals who were caught. Mm. And because these players were fairly obscure, it all started, of course, in Mansfield. They'd only just been in the league a few years. And Jimmy Gold was a player who'd been not a bad player at one point. I mm. think he played in the first division at one point. But he, yeah, was, he, played, for, he played for Everton. His career was on the way down at that point. Mm-hmm. Anyway, where we started off was, I think that was a blow to... Everton at that point that Kay went. So they had a couple of years where they weren't so good. But of course, Catrick then, as you say, rebuilt Ball, Kendall, Harvey. They became the academy of football. Mm. And certainly they were favoured by the Moores family. 
Everton were the preeminent club. They had the better ground. It was chosen for the World Cup in 1966 above Liverpool and above Old Trafford as well. So it was an era where a lot changed and a lot went on. But Catrick and Everton seemed to sail through it. They continued to be successful all until about 7071. Somehow Catrick lost his magic. Paddy, in October 63, there was a match to celebrate the 100th year of the Football Association took place at Wembley in which England played a rest of the world 11 as the senior fellow in this college council. Do you remember anything of that particular game? Because Dennis Law did play for the World Eleven. Yeah, I think Dennis scored, actually, for the rest of the world. He did. Which had a wonderful side out. I don't know if you'd be able to remind us. Well, Di Stefano, Pushkas, Dennis Law. That's not bad as a mean, Lev Yashin in goal, Eusebio. Yeah. It's not a bad little team. And England won 2-1 with goals from Terry Payne and Jimmy Greaves. Probably because all those superstars weren't tracking back. But I remember (laughs) the rest of the world matches were a great feature. And I'm sorry to be so Scottish, but we would expect to have a player in the rest of the world eleven. And in this occasion, it was Dennis. I think Jim Baxter played in at least one. Yes, I think he did too. In earlier ones... Billy Steele scored a... Was that the 47 one? The 40... Steele scored a fantastic goal. Did that take place at Hampden? Yes. It was a Charlton-esque goal, that one. But yes, we would expect to have players. I mean, just a little... If I can just put in a wee Scottish thing here. We talked about Everton winning the title. They were knocked out of the Fairs Cup in the first round that season, 62-3, by Dunfermline. Scottish football, it makes you weep now. Yes, I can I mean, I know that. we've done very well under Steve Clark, very well under Steve Clark of late, but when you think of the prestige of Scottish mm. football that was just beginning to ebb, you know, it makes people like me want to weep. Well, save Paddy's blushes and move the conversation off Thank you. football again briefly, because the following month, I want your memories of another event that took place, not at Dens Park, but in Dallas on the 22nd of November, 1963. What do you remember, John, of that day? I was at school and somebody who got a radio or something said, Kennedy's been shot. No, you weren't, because he was shot at half past 12, in which case it was half past five here. I was at boarding school at that stage. Ah, well, yes, yes. There was a friend of mine who, when I said Kennedy has been shot, he assumed that this was another boy in the school who'd been (laughs) shot. (laughs) It was that kind of a school, was it? Well, these things happen when you had rifle ranges and things like that. (laughs) So, yes, I do remember, of course, that started a sort of whole era because Kennedy had become a symbol, hadn't he, of of a sort of new age. The Conservatives had ruled since 1950. Initially under Churchill, then the shock of Suez in 56 did for Eden, but then... Macmillan, who was definitely the last Edwardian, if you like, mm. he was deposed. Gates School died in 1963 yes, as well. Yep. And the rumours that went around that Gates School had been poisoned by the Russians and all this sort of thing. Harold Wilson became leader of the Labour Party and was widely distrusted. People made out that he was a Russian agent 
And of course, Macmillan was succeeded by Lord Hume of the Hursel. Mm. I think the last Prime Minister who played first-class cricket. Not very well, apparently. Lord Hume of the Hursel, a.k.a. Bailey Vass. Bailey Vass. And you know why he was we called Bailey Vass? To, that was the week that was. No, that was Private Eye. It was Private Eye. It was the first ever transposed caption. Yes. The Aberdeen Press and Journal. Baileys were some kind of legal officers up in Scotland. And there was a picture of Bailey Vass and a picture of Sir Alec, and they got the captions wrong. So consequently, this otherwise obscure Bailey up in Scotland became famous every time you referred to the Prime Minister, Lord Hume. Sir Alec Douglas Well, Hewitt, the 14th Earl of Hume, of course. I'm sorry, we have got slightly off football topics, but it's interesting. The 14th Earl of Hume compared with the bloke who supported Huddersfield Town and yeah. used HP Source, that was a huge difference between the two. Oh, yeah. He was up there. He was up from your area. He was lord of somewhere around up in the Highlands, wasn't he? No, he was a border man. He was borders, but there was a big change there. The arrival in 64 of Harold Wilson, you know, with his copy of Herbert Chapman's Huddersfield team, a little newspaper cutting of the, the team photo, which he kept in his wallet, and would bring out to demonstrate his credentials. The Ganex raincoat, and so different from Lord Hume. Well, this was the change that football was going through because one of the things that, again, I'm going back to 1963 and football, is one of the things we haven't talked about yet is the 4th of July 1963. There was a decision handed down in the High Court by Mr Justice Wilberforce, mm. which supported George Easton's claim about the retain and transfer system. I think this is John's area. What happened in 63 for footballers after that decision was revolutionary. Of course, it was a movement during that period, wasn't it? The maximum wage went, the retain and transfer system effectively went. Can you explain what it was? Well, you couldn't be transferred unless the club said so. The players really, really were vassals of the club. Their contracts ended It was then a decision of the club whether the player was transferred or not. The player could ask for a transfer, but they'd just say, go away. You know, the famous moment that Tom Finney went in to the board and could have gone abroad for lots and lots of money. And the chairman said, you'll be going nowhere, lad. Get back and put your boots on. They'll play for us or they'll play for no one. Yeah, correct. This was George Easton financed by a man called Ernie Clay, to whom we have referred earlier. Ernie Clay financed George Easton's appeal. Why? He was on the side of the players at that point. Yeah. He later became chairman of Fulham. Yes. I never found out why he did finance George Easton. George Easton was a Newcastle player who wanted to leave Newcastle and go to Arsenal. Yes. His contract had come to an end and he stuck out. And for quite a long period, he didn't play. The club said no. And that was supported by the whole setup of FIFA, whereby world registrations, they couldn't go and play for anyone. Hence, as again we've referred to earlier, the Bogota rebels, Charlie Mittens, George Mountford and Neil Franklin, who fled to Colombia when Colombia left FIFA. That was the only thing. If you went and played for someone else, you would be blacklisted then. You couldn't play for anyone because you weren't in FIFA. George Easton was a very talented, skillful inside forward. 
who actually, as I remember, though he didn't play in any of the games, I think he was in the 1966 World Cup squad. I think he was in the 22. That's my recollection, certainly. And of course, his court case completed Jimmy Hill's work in the abolition of the maximum wage. Now, the players after Eastham had more clout. But of course, I still think that many, many, many years later, the Bosman case was the real breakthrough and produced the situation we have now. The Bosman case undoubtedly was the biggest change because when your contract came to an end, you still had to wait. There were still transfer fees involved. I remember one or two instances before Bosman where we threatened with a couple of players that we would test this Mm. in the courts, notably with Peter Shilton, who wanted to leave Leicester. And in the end, under threat of that, Leicester transferred him fairly quickly. Are there comparisons to be made between football in 1963 and football in 2023? Is it a completely different game? The country moves, so football moves with it. Paddy, can you see comparisons? What's left of 1963? You know, I've already touched on the sort of balance between English and Scottish football, such as it ever was, has been lost, completely lost in those 60 years. I mean, most people up in Scotland have, have an English club now, and they certainly didn't at that time. That's one difference. The other difference is that you wouldn't have as severe consequences of a deep and prolonged winter There would be fewer matches postponed these days. The pitches would resist them. They would be heated. So that wouldn't be as bad. Generally speaking, the spectator, although he or she has to pay more, even after allowing for inflation than they did in 1962-3, gets a much better deal, in my opinion. I think it's better now. Since the point of the game is to satisfy the spectator, I think the spectator has a better deal now, therefore it's a better game, therefore the 60 years have been kind to football. Good. The pitches, first of all. Yeah. The fact that players are now given due recompense for their efforts, the professionalism, coaches, television, television again. Yeah. We see all these games now. Instead of going when Preston North End came to watch Tom Finney, because that would be the only chance we'd get to watch Tom Finney, that's gone now because we see these players week in, week out. We can see Kevin De Bruyne virtually every week. We could see Rian Mahrez nearly every day of the week. There's a lot of difference in that respect. You sit, are treated a lot better. You, In those days, the best you could get was a cup of tea or a bovril at half-time. There weren't even pea, pies there, rather. Cologne peas with your buns. <laughs> um, and having a pea was also a much different experience in oh. those days, especially for a woman. And women weren't out the football matches. Nope. So those are all enormous differences. Is it better? Of course, it's better in lots and lots of ways. Is it as romantic as it was? No, Is a lot of that because of nostalgia? Of course it is. Is that because we're three ageing old gits? It's why I can still, until Leicester won the Cup two or three years ago, my abiding memory of Wembley and everything else was we went in 61, there was an excuse. In 69, of course, we lost to Manchester City. 
but we weren't very good then. But 63, we should have won. And that was, I think, the thing that drove me. Somebody said to me at the weekend, did winning the league or winning the cup mean more to you? If I'm really honest, I never dreamt we'd win the league. We, you know, it wasn't on the cards that Leicester could ever win the league. But I did keep dreaming that we might win the mm. cup one day. And sure enough, we did. Do I feel now about my football differently? Yeah, I do. Because, you know, here I am, 73 years old. And I think, you know what? I've seen the City win the Cup and the league. My dad lived to 82. He supported them all the way through, through the war and every damn thing. And we won nothing other than the wretched League Cup once or twice, which, you know, it's all right, fine. Leicester won the League Cup three times and won it for the first time in 1964. But that was nothing like the idea of going to Wembley and winning and being on TV. All right, final question to the two of you. Quiz question to which I've looked up the answer. So, (laughs) Who won the Football Writers Player of the Year in 1963? Was it Stanley Matthews? Oh, yes, well done. And who won it in 64 then? Just because it just shows how English football was changing. 64, uh, could it have been... Don't look it up, Paddy. Keep your eyes on me. Was it a Liverpool player? No, it wasn't. But the FA Cup is a significant factor. Uh, so who won the FA Cup in 64? Was that it, will uh, give you the clue. Arsenal? No, it wasn't. It was West Ham. It was West Ham, so it was Trevor Brooking. No, no it was probably Bobby Moore, it was, was it? It was Bobby Moore. There you are. John yeah. Holmes 2, Paddy Barclay nil. <laughs> <laughs> I told you Scotland weren't what they used to be. Well, I thought you might have come back on an intellectual level and won. You see, Paddy has to admit he didn't go to university. That knowledge of mine comes from university <laughs> education. <laughs> well, listen, I have to say that we've had a lot of interesting discussions on this podcast series. But I'm rather suspecting the way I chose this as a topic was because it was so significant to me in, in, in my youth growing up. But I've had a, such a wonderful time with this particular podcast yes. and it seems to have, have, have sparked. I think we're going to have to choose another year at some point. I in the think future. if our listeners have any yes, ideas about a year say, that they would like, sorry. Yes, I'd... I would like to encourage people to write to us and tell us, you know, not just their topics that they would always want to, to have, and we are covering them as they say them to us. But I would like to know a year and why you felt that year was so significant in your own football early life. You'll have to write to us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com and we will, we will be grateful for your responses. So until that famous time, thank you very much as ever to John Holmes, to Patrick Barclay, to our indefatigable producer Paul Kobrak. This is Colin Schindler saying thank you for listening. See you next time on Football Ruin My Life. Podcast Network.